Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you had to fill in the blank here, what would it be? The Christian life is like blank. Like what? If you ask the Apostle Paul that question, my guess is that he'd say the Christian life is like running a race. Not like the 100-meter dash, more like a marathon. Less like the hare, more like the tortoise. And that's exactly what we find the Apostle encouraging us as God's people to do in our text this morning. I summarize God's word with this theme, keep your eyes on the prize. We'll see two points, first, not perfect, and second, pressing on. Now, prior to our text, Paul spoke beautifully about counting everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Paul came to realize that that everything he, he did, everything he ever accomplished, and he was quite an accomplished man, He counted it as rubbish because he found Christ. And he knew that all that he had gained was nothing compared to him. And he had a burning desire, he expresses in the words before our text, to to gain Christ, to be found in him, to know him and the power of his resurrection. But now in our text, he pauses to make a clarification. That's what he's doing in verse 12 of our text. He says there, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. It's not exactly clear here what Paul has not yet obtained. The verb there, obtained, doesn't actually have an object in the Greek. It simply says, not that I have already obtained English translations add it because that's, it doesn't make sense to end, uh, not that I have already obtained. But then here we are moved by the Spirit to, to ponder, to, to meditate upon what it is that Paul has not yet obtained. And the context gives us some clues and possibilities. Might it be the, the resurrection of the dead that Paul longs to attain in verse 11? Maybe it is the the righteousness of God in Christ to be experienced in the fullest of measure. He was was perfect, righteous in in Christ, and yet he still struggled with his own sin. Or or maybe it's an increasing desire to, to gain Christ more, as he said in the verses before our text, in the sense of seeing Christ in all of his glory and to see that more clearly than he did at that moment. Maybe it was to know Christ deeper, to be found in him and to be more satisfied in him than he was. Now, given all of these possibilities are grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, perhaps we could say, as some have suggested, that at root, Christ himself is the missing object here. Paul has yet not yet obtained Christ in, in all of his fullness, in all of his glory and majesty. Christ is simply and profoundly too great a person to grasp fully in one's lifetime. Verse 12 goes on. 
Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. That is quite an honest confession on the part of Paul. How can someone like Paul, a leader in the church, admit that he is not yet perfect? And this is, this is quite striking that he does so because in the, uh, in the context here, in the early verses of uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 2, he mentions the mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh were those who required that Christians still needed to practice circumcision in order to be faithful. And in addition to that, those mutilators of the flesh, it was common knowledge in those days, taught that you as an individual, if you obeyed the law, you could not only if you could obey the law, but you could perfectly obey the law. And, and Paul, in that context, admits that he, a leader of the church, can't actually do what these mutilators of the flesh teach. He knows his own heart. He knows that despite what these mutilators of the flesh teach about reaching perfection in in this life by obedience to the law, Paul himself, a leader of the church, admits in an open letter that he has not yet arrived in his walk with the Lord. He's open enough to admit and to say, I am not perfect. And there's something deeply comforting here, brothers and sisters. This is an apostle. This is a leader of the church, a spirit-inspired author of many of the New Testament letters. And yet he's honest enough to admit publicly that he doesn't have it all together. That indeed he is not yet perfect. That he still has struggles with sin, with fear, with doubts. They are real for him. And even though we would regard him as one of the holiest among us, he has by his own admission here only a small beginning of obedience. And, and what a comfort. What a comfort for, for me as, as a minister. Sometimes we ministers put pressure on ourselves to make it look like we have it all together, that we're more perfect than we really are. And sometimes we we get put on a pedestal by others. Only Jesus is worthy of a pedestal. So you can can put me, better your minister, you you don't know me at all. You You can put me or your minister on a pulpit because God has called us to a pulpit. You cannot put us on a pedestal. None of us are perfect. All of us included. We are all like Paul, are we not? We have not yet obtained Christ in all of his fullness. We do not yet know him as he fully is. His righteousness perfectly covers us in the sight of God, yes, but but we know each of our hearts, don't we, that we are still inclined to evil. Sin, fear, and doubts linger in my own heart as they did in Paul's, as they do in yours. And even if I don't know you, I I know that that is what the scriptures teach. To give but one example, 1 John 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so let the truth be in us. Let us not deceive ourselves. 
Let the truth prevail. On, on this side of the grave, all of us are, are works in progress. And that's a major theme in, the, in this book of Philippians. If you had your Bibles open, you could flip back to uh, chapter 1, verse 6. And there Paul says that he who began a good work in you, that is God, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion, not, not in this life, but at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is very aware that we are all works in progress. Now there is a danger though, a trap that we sometimes fall into, an excuse that we sometimes use. I'm not perfect can be a way of deflecting, a way of not dealing honestly with our sin, a way of justifying our lack of real desire to know Christ more. A friend admonishes you. You really need to cut back on using that filthy language of yours. It dishonors God. You really need to stop gossiping about others. You are much too quick to judge. Or perhaps as the Spirit works in your heart as you read God's Word, it convicts you that you need to deal with a particular sin that that you've been clinging to, that you have been refusing to let go, a hidden addiction perhaps, some form of covetousness that is not visible to others, a love of money, a deep-seated pride, a refusal to do what is right. Whatever it is, we, we can be tempted to justify these sorts of things with those words. I'm... Not perfect. That's really just code language in these situations. For I'm content in my sin. Leave me alone. It's by it we are expressing a complacency. We are justifying a lack of real, genuine desire to know Christ more deeply. Now is that, is that what Paul is doing in our text? Is this code language for him? When he says, I'm not perfect. Well, look again at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Those words press on, but I press on to, to make it my own. Press on, those are hunting words. It's what a gazelle does when it's being hunted by someone. It presses on, it it keeps running, it it flees for its life until it is safe again. Well, well, that's what Paul says he does here. He runs like a gazelle, flees from his doubts, his fears, and his sins. And no doubt, with determined resolution, he runs and flees to the arms of Christ, resting in his perfect righteousness. And he presses on, verse 12, goes on to say, to make it my own. Now this is where the athletic stuff starts to come into play in our text. We find, we find the same words, at least in Greek, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, which we read together. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And then we read there, so run that you may obtain it. Obtain the prize. Well, the Greek word for obtain there is the same as our, the, the phrase there, make it your own, in verse 12. It's very much a sports imagery. 
And by mixing the, the hunting imagery with a sports one, then we have a very vivid sense of what Paul is doing when he presses on. Sometimes if you watch someone play sports, you, you might say he's like an animal or, or a beast out there. He, he can't be stopped. That's how persistent Paul is in his desire to obtain the prize, to keep running the race with perseverance. Now the prize for a runner, as he made clear in 1 Corinthians 9, is, is a perishable wreath. But there he also spoke about an imperishable wreath, an imperishable prize. And the prize for Paul, as we will see soon enough, wasn't just a a wreath. Indeed, it was something that was imperishable because it was a person who is far greater than himself. That Paul is pressing on in this way is not a reason for him to boast, not, not at all. He presses on to to make the the prize his own, yes, but he does so with the last part of verse 12 very clearly etched within his mind. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Again, this is athletic language. Paul is saying here that Jesus Christ ran his own race It was marked out for him by his heavenly father. And unlike Paul and unlike you and I, Jesus raced perfectly. There was no fear. There were no lingering sins. There were no doubts in in his heart, in his actions. Not even when he endured the cross, when he scorned its shame, when he bore the full weight of God's wrath for, for our sin, for our fears, for our doubts. And what was Christ's prize at the end of the race? As he sat down at the right hand of the throne of his Father in heaven, what did he receive as a prize? What did he obtain? Not a wreath, not a perishable cup. Paul. Paul was his prize. Christ Jesus made made me, Paul says, his own. Paul is Jesus Christ's prize. And as it is with Paul, so it is with all who are united to Christ by faith, whose names are are written in the book of life. Jesus ran the race, died on the cross to obtain us so that we might belong to him. We are his prize, we are his wreath, we are his trophy. And that is why he ran the race to obtain us out of love for you, to make you his own. Now sometimes a trophy or a prize from our yesteryears collects dust and eventually we discard it or our kids play with it and they break it or or they go to the thrift store. It is not so with those whom Christ received as his prize. What he received through his work on the cross, never gets dry and and dusty. He never forgets about those who he claimed as his own. He says in John 10, speaking about uh, the sheep of his pasture, it is true what he says there also for us as his prize. He says, I give them eternal life and they they will never perish and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he adds, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand either. Indeed, what what gospel hope, 
We, we are Christ's prize and, and, and he cherishes us. He, he does not let us out of his hands. He is holding us firm. And what a blessing that is because sometimes in this marathon of the Christian life, we are, uh, that we are in, we, we will at times find ourselves exhausted, find ourselves weary, find ourselves wanting to give in, to throw in the towel. It is in those times that we must remember, brothers and sisters, that we are not alone. Christ is holding you fast. You are His prize. He is not going to let you go. And so that allows us then to run, not in our own strength, but in His. We can run with the the beautiful words of Isaiah chapter 40 in, in our minds. You can read them at home. Beautiful words about how the Lord is the the everlasting God. He is one who doesn't faint and grow weary. He is the one who is holding on to us. And so even if we grow faint, even if we grow weary, even if we should fall exhausted, Isaiah 40 says, that that they who wait on the Lord shall, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Indeed, cling to those words, dear congregation. Now Paul begins verse 13 with a reaffirmation that he is not yet already perfect. He says there, brothers, I I do not consider that I have made it my own. Simply saying in another way there that he's he's not perfect. And then he, he goes on in the rest of verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. It is easy to sometimes get stuck in the past, isn't it? To feel trapped or locked in by it, even even haunted by it. Sometimes we get trapped in the past because we've never dealt honestly with some serious sin in our lives. Never truly repented from it, but simply covered it up. Such sins should haunt a person until they they repent, until they come clean and find forgiveness in Christ. But at other times, even when we truly repent... Even still, we can be haunted by our past sins, can't we? We get stuck in them and are overcome with despair. We're stuck in the past, not forgetting what is behind. And this happens not just with old sins, mind you. One author noted that that the grief of losing a loved one can be so strong that we we run the risk of, of living forever in the past, ever remembering what we had ever remembering what we lost, never being able to move forward, never truly content with our circumstances in life. Bitterness can do this as well. We've been wronged, hurt deeply, sinned against by others, sometimes by those who are closest to us. Or maybe we've had all sorts of health concerns or, or troubles in our lives and our families and it, it, can, it can leave us with a, a bitter taste in our mouths. And if we are not careful, that bitterness can lock us in the past. 
Paul had every reason to despair over his sins. Remember, he referred to himself as the worst of sinners. He had every reason to be bitter as well. This is a very joyful letter, this letter of Philippians, but maybe some of you know that during the time that he wrote this, he was under house arrest for some two years or so, and his life was in the balance. What a reason to be bitter. And yet he is not haunted by his past. He forgets what lies behind. Now this doesn't mean to to clarify, and especially in the the light of of the passing of of little Aldrich. I didn't even think of that uh, before I came here. It doesn't mean that we cannot grieve over the loss of loved ones or that there shouldn't be a time of sorrow over our sins. There is indeed a time to grieve. There is a time to mourn. Scripture allows that. But there is also a time to forget what lies behind. That is what Paul is encouraging us here. In the sense that that what has happened in the past no longer consumes us and, and debilitates us. God in Christ has forgotten our sin, remembers them no more. And in Christ, there is resurrection hope, is there not, for those who have died in Christ? Now, Paul doesn't just forget. That's not what, what he says in verse 13. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And here again, the imagery, uh, the athletic imagery is, wrong, is strong here. You need to see, see a runner before you. And, and when someone is, is running a marathon, they are not forever looking back behind. Where, where's the next person? No, the, the runner's focus is ahead. His whole body is extending forward. His eyes are straining, his legs are moving, his hands are going with determination. His, his neck and his arm muscles are stretching towards the finish line. And that is the, the one thing that Paul does, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, stretching forward to what lies ahead. Now what exactly is it that is ahead for Paul? What is ahead for us as we we run this marathon we call life? Well, look at verse 14. He says there, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, of God in Christ Jesus. In verse verse 12, Paul said he is not yet perfect. And so now the, the goal then is not hard to figure out. His goal is perfection itself. That, that's what he is striving for. He is striving for the goal of perfection. He's striving for the time when sin and, and all of the effects of sin will be no more. And this will only happen when he obtains his prize. And, and what is his prize? We, we hinted at it earlier. But if you remember, what was the prize that Jesus Christ ran the race for? It it was Paul. Paul was Jesus Christ's prize. Well, the prize that, that, that Paul will receive when he finishes his race is Jesus Christ, his Lord, in all of his glory, in all of his fullness. That is the prize he is after. That is the prize that we are after To use the words of an old, uh, maybe unfamiliar hymn, Christ is the path and Christ the prize. 
Yes, Christ is the one who we are running for. Christ is our our priceless treasure. He is our highest joy. He is our, our ever great reward, our highest prize. Winning the Stanley Cup is nothing compared to winning this prize of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Without Him, we are nothing in Him, we, we are and have everything that we need. We have joy, we have righteousness, we have life forevermore. And so He is the one we must keep our eyes on as we run the race marked out for us. And so we must keep our eyes indeed on Him, the prize. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. The meaning of the last words There in verse 14, about the upward call of God in Jesus Christ, it's not immediately clear. There's a lot of discussion about what this actually means. But it may well mean, as at least one commentator has noted, that this is a continuation of the athletic imagery here. And it's not hard to see. You've, You've all watched the Olympics, I'm sure. And after the final race is over, well, then there is always an official ceremony. And with the official ceremony, there is also a podium. And there the victors are, are, are called, their names are, are, are spoken, and then they are called up to the podium and they, they receive their prize. They receive their, their wreath or their gold medal or whatever it is. And this fits well with our text. When the race is done and finished, God will call us upward and homeward. And we will then be crowned victorious. We, we will then enter into the joy of our master. And it is fitting that Paul adds in Christ Jesus at the end of our text there, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He is our prize. He is also the reason God calls us heavenward. Without Christ, God would never do that. But it is because we are in Christ, it is because Christ has taken hold of us that we can have that confidence that we will have our names called by God himself. What a joy, brothers and sisters. What a God. What a Savior. And so, fellow runners, we, we are not yet perfect. We struggle with sin, with fears, with doubts. Press on then. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. The goal of perfection awaits. The the prize is waiting too. So, So keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Press on knowing that Jesus, our prize, has already claimed us as his own, as his prized possession. Through his precious blood, Jesus Christ has made us his own. He will not let you go. And so when you are weary, when you want to give up, when you want to throw in that towel, wait on the Lord. He will renew your strength so that you can run and not grow weary. And one day, God, God will call you upward in Christ Jesus and you will receive your prize and you will be with Christ for all eternity. So press on, fellow runners. Keep your eyes on the prize. Amen.